Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. I was 18 years old. I, well, I stole a van. Uh, now, it's the, the story gets a little bit worse and it gets a little bit better. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I was attending a small uh, Baptist Bible college, and I had begun to become interested in some churches that were not exactly the same thing as that. And so as I became interested in those churches that were a little bit different, um, I commandeered one of the college's 15 passenger vans and decided to drive it two and a half hours away uh, to go see uh, a guy preach. And so that's what I did. Now, I had a little bit of cover. Uh, I did it with one of the dean of men. So if anybody's going to get in trouble, it's not going to be me. Uh, However, this was sort of very high on the things you shouldn't do. At this college, going to a a Presbyterian church, especially one with a name like St. Andrew's Chapel that just sounded all kinds of Catholic, this was highly inappropriate to them. But I wanted to go hear a pastor named R.C. Sprawl. And so so I took the van. So we took the van and we drove two and a half hours away and we did. Let's be honest, as far as crimes go, this is a very benign and strangely Christian form of rebellion, (laughs) which, if I'm honest, is probably a set of words that could describe me most of my life, and especially as a 19-year-old, benign and strangely Christian. (laughs) But I wanted to go see, I wanted to go hear this guy named R.C. Sprawl preach. I wanted to go to this strangely named place and hear it because he had been a significant part of my faith journey. He had, he had been somebody who had, who had opened up my eyes to see how the Bible was connected. He had opened up my eyes to see what grace in the Bible meant. And so I wanted to go see him and I did. And it was great. It was wonderful. One of the things that always struck me about Pastor R.C. Sproul is he's almost always has the ability to make complex theology seem very simple. He can take something that is incredibly difficult to understand and make it very, very simple. I like that. The other thing that was striking to me about him that I sort of hadn't heard before, hadn't understood before, was this idea of he seemed, he seemed to know everything. And for better and for worse at times, he seemed very certain of everything. Which struck me this week, because this week, as we've been walking through the book of John, we come to probably the most famous portion of the book of John, if not maybe the most famous portion of the entire Bible. We're going to be talking about John chapter 3, the the home of John 3.16, which you might know from uh, football games in the 80s and 90s. And what was striking to me is that I was reading on it, I was struck by how much different stuff is in John 3 
how much stuff that's not always the easiest to understand. And then as I was reading through, and I was reading R.C. Sproul, this guy who I stole a van to go see, who I appreciated his, his candor, his directness, said, I've been studying John chapter 3 for 40 years, and there are large chunks of it that I'm still not sure what's going on. And yet, this passage contains this, this duplicity, this, this two things at once. It is the thing that if we want to tell somebody, hey, what's the easiest way to give us the picture of what Jesus is about? John 3.16, let's do that. And at the same time, it's couched in a conversation that somebody who has, has made a living making complex things simple looks at and goes, that's really complex and I'm not sure all the things that are going on there. And so as we read this, there's something about that, that dichotomy, about that shift, about that characteristic of this passage that is, on the one hand, very simple, on the other hand, complex. That reminds us of Christianity as a whole. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read this story together. So I'm going to read it, and if you would, please stand and listen. The words will be on the screen behind me as we read the first 21 verses of John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things, hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Our struggle is not very different from Nicodemus in this passage. Whether we are a Christian or not, our struggle is oftentimes that we don't understand who Jesus is. And even when we do understand who Jesus is, we struggle to fully believe what Jesus says. Because as you read this story, by and large, the details of it are somewhat simple. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, they have a conversation, and that conversation does not go exactly the way Nicodemus thinks it will. And Jesus sort of wraps it up and finishes that conversation. On its face, that's a pretty simple story. How many of us have ever had the experience of meeting somebody, having a conversation with them, something doesn't seem to connect, the communication doesn't seem to be happening well, and then we sort of move on, and the story kind of changes. That's, in one way, all that's really going on here. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. Nicodemus misunderstands Jesus. Jesus clarifies. And to add to the simplicity, th- there are no complex words going on here. This is, this is a story that even a young child could read. The problem becomes that it is chock full of metaphors. It's hard for us to understand at times because there are several metaphors going on at the same time. You even see that with Nicodemus, right? Jesus says, see, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, hold up, hold up. I know that I have a first century understanding of biology, but I'm pretty sure that, that that doesn't work, that you can't do that. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're missing the point, Nicodemus. And many of us, in the same ways, miss the point. He says, in order to truly understand who God is, in order to truly understand, in order to truly see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. You have to have something fundamentally change in your life. Which would have been pretty shocking and scandalous to say to Nicodemus. Because even in this set of verses that we have here, the sort of resume that John lays out that Nicodemus has is excellent. In fact, as you look through the New Testament, probably nobody but the Apostle Paul had a better resume than Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of Israel. He was a scribe, most likely. He was on the council and he has all of these accolades and he comes to Jesus, the promised Messiah, and he cannot even begin to wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, you got to be born again. He goes, nope, nope, not how biology works. Don't understand. And again and again and again, Jesus sort of looks at it another way. But as we look at the story of Nicodemus, one of the things we need to pay attention to is that our religious accolades don't merit anything. 
Nicodemus was probably the kind of guy who had never missed Sunday school. He was the guy that not only grew up in the synagogue, but became, became the, was part of the youth group at synagogue. And after he was part of the youth group at synagogue, he, he went away to, to a good college and, and found a good campus ministry. And then he went away to seminary and he, he did all the right things. Nicodemus was the guy that, the kind of guy that did everything that he was supposed to do. Did it help him understand Jesus more? No. For those of us who have grown up in the church, this should be a, a somewhat sobering and shocking thought. For Maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but maybe you've been in the church for a long time, for 10, 15, 20 years. The idea that all of Nicodemus' religious activity, that all of his study could amount to not being able to understand Jesus in a fundamental way should give us pause, should make us stop and think, am I listening for the voice of Jesus or am I just trying to approach this as if it's some sort of academic matter? As if it's some sort of thing that I can achieve? As if this is something where if I just do all the right things and pile up the right resume, God is going to love me. No, what matters, according to Jesus in this passage, is new birth. Is that we are born into a new family. That we are given a new identity. That we are given a new name. What, what John and Jesus are telling us in this passage is that you have to be willing to abandon your spiritual resume to follow Jesus. Which, which brings the question to us. Are you willing to abandon your spiritual resume to follow Jesus? What if Jesus asked you to move to a new city? And you used to be a big something at a church and now you're a who? You going to follow Jesus then? What if Jesus doesn't always answer your prayer request? Even though you've done all the right things. Are you going to follow Jesus then? What's significant as John tells us the story of Jesus and Nicodemus interacting with one another again and again in this passage is that there is something that has to change. Something that is old has to become new. And the metaphors for it are all over the place. We need new life. We need new birth. We need a new identity. We need a new family. We have a new destiny. You know, it's interesting that this passage, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God, but then he turns to a different analogy. He begins to talk about eternal life. And unfortunately for us, most of us, when we hear the term eternal life, want to think about what happens when I die. That eternal life is something that's out there in the future. But when John says this, he doesn't say that Jesus came to give us life after death. What he says is he came to give us the life of the ages. The life that begins now that reflects a new sort of world. 
And Jesus says, Jesus says, this is what I'm offering you. This is what you have. That if you are a new person, if you are a new creation, you are living a new sort of life. You see, eternal life is not something. New life in Jesus is not something that you can just add on to your life like you can just about every other new thing. When you get a new car, as much as you hope it will, it does not fundamentally change who you are as a person. When you get a new house with a new address in St. Petersburg, it does not fundamentally change who you are. When you get new life in Christ, it fundamentally changes who you are. And John tells us that Jesus says this is not about heaven. This is something more. Something more is being offered by Jesus here. A new sort of life. A quality of life that is different than what's before. In some ways, it's simple. You must be born again. In other ways, it's complex. What does that mean? And more than what does that mean, how do we get that? How do we get from here to there? Which is what Jesus tells Nicodemus all about. What do we do to get new life in Christ? What do we do to receive this this new birth, this birth from heaven, this life of the ages? How do we get that? Because as we look at our lives, we find a lot of reasons why our old life is not fulfilling, why our old life is not enough, why we need a new life. Most of us can see where that need comes from. So how do we get there? What is the ritual we have to perform? No, wrong question. What are, what are the list of things that we need to do to accomplish that? Wrong question. What we need to do in order to have this sort of life is to believe. Now, this doesn't just mean acknowledge the existence of things. Like, I believe that certain movies are going to start playing on Friday in these other theaters. To believe what Jesus is telling us we do, have to do, is put our full trust and reliance on this thing. In this case, Jesus is saying, believe, put your full trust and reliance on me. That's how you get this new life. That's how you get it. And part of us goes, all right, that's great. All I have to do is believe. All I I have to do is ask Jesus for forgiveness and then like all my records go clean and everything is fine, right? I'm I'm reminded of the, the scene in the classic movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where one of the characters gets baptized and asks God for forgiveness and decides that he's going to go turn himself into the law because he's been forgiven. One of the other characters points out that I think that you may be forgiven by God, but the state of Mississippi may still have some problems with you. But what happens when we see how shockingly simple it is to follow Christ, when we see how the sort of what it is we must do is just believe for some of us, we are tempted to use this as an excuse to do whatever we want to use this. You know what? I'll just, I'll just ask for, I'll ask for forgiveness, not ask for permission. Now, most of us sort of like that when it's us that's doing the ask for forgiveness, not ask for permission thing. Hate it when people do it to us. 
And most of us take that into our relationship with God. Most of us kind of say, you know what? I know God doesn't want me to do these things, but you know, I'm just going to do it and I'll ask for forgiveness tonight and everything will be fine. You know what? Tomorrow morning, I'll wake up, I'll pray, and Jesus will be good with me. I know that you, that some of you at least have these thoughts because I have these thoughts. We, we make our sin no big deal. We treat our sins as an oops. Oh, yeah, I'm just human. It happens. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. Not a problem. One of the things that this does is when we see how all Christ requires of us is belief. We try to turn it into something that's not. And what we don't realize is the relational damage it does between us and God. Because forgiveness does not always change the distance between two people. And that distance is not on the part of God, but it's on the part of myself. And so as we read this story, we need to see that true new life from God changes our hearts and changes our desires and makes us more and more like Christ. It is a life that is of a different way. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This isn't just Jesus giving us instructions on how to go to the good place when we die. This isn't just Jesus giving us a few tips. No, this is Jesus telling us that there is a new sort of life available to us. A life where we can have a conscience that is clean. A life where we have meaning and value in everything we do. And it's not just people who are famous or have achieved something interesting that get to have a meaningful, valuable life. It's all of us. No matter what our occupation is, no matter what we do for a living or don't do for a living. In Christ, we find a place for meaning and value. But we have to be reconciled in order to find that. Towards the end of the passage, Jesus has this sort of opaque set of sayings about, about I didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. And then he starts to talk about darkness and light. And he talks about that. He reminds us of that truth. Because for most of us, we need to be reminded that the wrath of God is actually a thing. Because we like to sugar over that. We'd rather that was not a thing. I would rather that was not a thing. As we read the text of scripture, we see that the ways that we sin, the ways that we hurt others and ourselves, incur the wrath of God. And so Jesus reminds us that yes, yes, our actions are evil, but the forgiveness of God is full and free. And he alludes to this story, this quick little story, that if you didn't if you didn't notice it, you might have glossed right over it when he says, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up just like the bronze serpent was lifted up, which was this whole story from the Old Testament, which we aren't going to get into all the details of this morning, but the people of Israel had sinned against God, and so God had sent a plague of poisonous snakes. And everybody had been, been getting bitten by this plague of poisonous snakes. And then God said, you know what, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, put it in the middle of the camp, and anybody who is dying of poison from these snakes, just look. 
Just look at the bronze snake and you will be healed. Just believe and you will be healed. And so Moses did that. And in so many ways, that is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus forgives us and heals us. And just like the people of Israel who looked at that, received new life, because they were going to die from the poisonous snake, just like that, Jesus gives us new life. But he does it at great cost to himself. He does it because when Jesus is lifted up, he's not just lifted up on a tree like that bronze serpent. He's lifted up on the tree to die. To take your place. To take mine. To give us a chance to live the life of the ages. And so that's what we do. We live as a new family of God. It is mysterious, just like the wind, that goes wherever it wants. It is, it is strange to be the people of God. But Jesus didn't quite fit in either. When even this religious Pharisee comes to him, he tells him something that is so simple and complex, so normal and yet so beautiful at the same time. And so let's, let's live that sort of life, City Church. As we see Jesus, as we see what Jesus has done for us, as we reflect on how deep his love for us is, may we follow after him. May we comfort the afflicted. May we afflict the comforted. May we live the life of the ages here and now in St. Petersburg. Let's pray.